A little while ago, I read a, a book. I, I mentioned it before. It's a fascinating book. It's called A Year of Living Biblically. It's by a guy named A.J. Jacobs, and he records his attempt to follow the commands of the Bible as literally as possible for a year. Um, he, he does this, of course, for comedic effect, and it is quite funny. Uh, in the course of his study, uh, eventually he ran across in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13.5. And in some translations, 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. And this is a big problem for A.J. because he literally kept a record of wrongs. Um, he had a bad memory, and he realized eventually that he kept losing arguments to his wife because when they'd get into the fight, she could bring up all these things that he had done in the past that were wrong, and he could never remember the ways that she had also done things wrong in the past. So he decided what he would do was he'd begin writing it down. Whenever he caught her doing something wrong or making a mistake, he wouldn't call her out, and he would just write it down in his little notebook so that the next time they had a fight, he could use this as ammunition against her so that he could then win the fight, so he kept a record of wrongs. Uh, it should go without saying that this is very bad marriage advice. Okay, so, so, so hear that. Don't leave today. That. Pastor, I loved what you said today about keeping a record of wrongs. I'm going to try that. No, no, don't do that. Uh, it's very bad advice. And, uh, and yet, and yet many of us do it. We have this scorekeeping mentality. Uh, not just in marriage, all, all of life. Uh, where uh, we might not have, probably don't have a literal notebook where we keep track of the things that were done against us. But we have a record in our minds. We have a very, very finely attuned sense of justice and injustice. Uh, and when someone has wronged us, we note that. We hold on to it. And if we can get them back right away, we'll do that. Or if we have to bide our time and wait, we will. But eventually, we will make them pay. We will get what we deserve. We like to keep score. Uh, we don't necessarily keep score in little books, but we keep score. We function tit for tat. Eye for an eye. It's the way the world works. But it is not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of love. Uh, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount together, which is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, so if you have your Bibles, please open up with me to Matthew chapter 5. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we have been seeing Jesus teach us how to love. Uh, he, he just keeps driving home that love is the key fruit that identifies someone as a Christian. Love is the distinctive thing that will enable us to change the world of salt and light. And so in chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus goes to great lengths to teach us what love actually is. And starting in Matthew five twenty-one, Jesus teaches that love means, uh, of course, renouncing murder, but also renouncing anger and contempt and hatred. And then Matthew 5, 27, he, he, he points out that love, of course, means that you don't commit adultery, but also means that you renounce lustful intent and that you treat one another as human beings made in the image of God. In Matthew 5, 31, he teaches that love, of course, means that we honor marriage and that we don't divorce except for the most serious of reasons. And in Matthew 5, 33, he said that love means, of course, you keep your oath, but it also means that every word you speak should be as trustworthy and reliable as an oath. And here in Matthew 5, 38, Jesus gives us a fifth characteristic of love. And it's that love means that we stop keeping score. Love means that we stop keeping score. We renounce this scorekeeping mentality, this record of wrong keeping that we do. It means that when people wrong us, we don't demand payback. 
It means that we don't always demand our rights and say, I'll go this far, but no farther. It means that we give generously, even lavishly, even if somebody hasn't done something for us first. This passage that we we look at today is very familiar, but it's very tough. It's Matthew 5, 38. Verses uh, verse 38 through 42. Why don't you follow along as I read it together? Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There's a few things that come out as we look at this. This is a deep passage. I mean, this is one of those passages this week where I was struggling, because it's like, there's so much here, there's no way I can cover this, and then I just realized, there's no way I can cover this. So I'm just going to preach what I can, <laughs> what I can cover, and, uh, and we'll see what the Spirit has for us this morning. Uh, the first thing that we see as we look at this passage is that love means we don't demand payback. Love means we don't demand payback. If, if we're following Jesus in the way of love, we will not seek revenge. We will not seek retaliation for wrongs that are done to us. We will not demand an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Verse 38, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, this, is, this is Jesus quoting the Old Testament law. And this, this phrase actually shows up a few different times in the Old Testament. And like we've seen in the pattern of what's gone on in the sermon so far, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus often begins by quoting from the Old Testament. And, and when he does that, he's not denying the teaching of the Old Testament. He's just saying it's been misunderstood and misapplied. Um, so when you look at the context, actually, where this verse comes from, uh, for example, one of them is Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. It shows up a few places. Here's one of them. Um, Exodus 21, 22 through 25 says this, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. So two two guys fighting. There's a pregnant woman there. She gets hit. Uh, And they say if the baby's born and there's no problem with the baby, well, then there's just a fine and, and the judges will figure out what to do. But then it says, if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. You get the point? These two guys fighting, and, and, and in the course of this particular fight, there's a pregnant woman, the baby's born, or, or maybe stillborn. Okay, what's the penalty there? Well, life for life. Or the baby comes out crippled, what's the penalty there? Leg for leg. Right? This, this is the law that's given, and there's a few other cases in the Old Testament where this law is applied in similar situations to explain how this justice is going to work. Okay, now, now it's actually, this is good. This is really helpful. It's really helpful to have a law like that. You know, on one hand, it provides a, a deterrent for some people at least. Some people know, okay, I can't just go around hurting people because there's going to be payback on me. There's going to be justice. Um, it, it's good because it does provide justice, a fair and equitable response to the evil that's done. But I think most importantly, the good of this law is that it limits retribution. It protects against our tendency for over-the-top revenge. 
That's our tendency to overreact. When someone does something small to us, we want to respond with overwhelming force to them. Right? Like if you just walk by and accidentally step on my toe and it really hurts, my inclination is not to then similarly accidentally tread on your toe with the appropriate force. Right? You step on my toe and make me hurt, I want to smack your face. Okay? And so if, if I were writing this law here and it says, okay, you hurt my baby, I'll kill you. Right? That's how we want to respond. That's how we th- would think is appropriate. You do something small to me, I respond with overwhelming force against you. And this law is good because it limits that. It doesn't say two eyes for one eye, two legs for one leg. It says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. When you look at it in its context, you see that this law properly understood limits and even prohibits revenge. Um, it, it requires going through a court system. It's not for individuals to enact. It, it limits the penalty to the actual damage done. It's actually quite responsible. But our heroes, the Pharisees, uh, again, take this law that, that is prohibiting revenge, even limiting the response that you can give, and they turn it into a license for revenge and even a command for revenge. They say, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. They hurt you, you hurt them. That's the Bible. Right? God commands eye for an eye. So if they hurt you, then you better, if they take your eye, you better go take their eye. They turn into a justification for revenge, which appeals to us because that's how we respond. When somebody wrongs us, we want to make them pay. Maybe they physically hurt you or someone you love. Maybe they insulted you. Maybe they broke your heart. Maybe they got you fired. But whatever they've done, someone does wrong to you, what you want to do, what I want to do, is get them back. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. We need to pay, this, pay, pay them back and even the score. Uh, but Jesus says no. Jesus says no, that's not love. So here his famous words in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Turn the other cheek. What does that mean? What's that really mean? Um, this is a, probably an opportunity to ask questions. There's a lot of questions that we could have about this. You know, does, does, does that mean, is Jesus saying here that, uh, that Christians should tolerate abuse? Uh, does that mean that if a criminal is attacking my family that I can't fight back? Uh, does that mean that Christians can't be police officers or in the military? Those are all good questions. I'm not going to answer those questions right now. Those are your questions. You could write those down on a green sheet of paper. You can put them in the question box in the back, the question box in the back, and we will answer those throughout the week. Um, those are good questions, but those would take the entire time to deal with. Uh, I want to focus on what's clear here. And what's clear is that, first of all, turn the other cheek means that payback is forbidden. Okay, this is, this is the clear teaching. Payback is Forbidden. If turn the cheek means anything, it means that we cannot seek revenge and retaliation when we're wronged. Our obvious response when someone slaps us in the face is to slap them in the face. To pay them back, even to give worse than we got. But Jesus clearly forbids that. He says we cannot respond to violence with violence. We cannot respond to wrong with wrong. We cannot respond to evil with evil. Okay, And it's not just Jesus. This is the unanimous teaching of the New Testament. Let me give you a few other verses 1 Peter 3, 9. 1 Peter 3, 9. 
It says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. 1 Thessalonians 5.13. 1 Thessalonians 5.13. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Romans 12, starting in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Sounds like these guys are paying attention to Jesus. Love requires that we do not pay people back for the evil that they have done. When they do evil to us, we cannot do evil back to them. When they slap us in the face, we cannot respond by slapping them in the face. We must do good. We must respond to evil with good. Payback is forbidden. But this doesn't mean that we do nothing. It doesn't mean that we do nothing. Turn the other cheek means that payback is forbidden, but it also means that passivity is forbidden. When Jesus says turn the cheek, he doesn't mean do nothing. If he meant that, he would say that. He said when someone strikes you on, on, on the cheek, do nothing. He didn't say that. He said when someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek, which is very different from doing nothing. He doesn't say when you're hit, just accept it, just walk away. He tells us to respond. But he tells us to respond in a way that is challenging to the one who's doing the violence. See, it, if when you're hit, you embrace the passive response and you simply walk away, the result of that is that the person who's doing the violence assumes that it worked. They think nothing of it and they continue to go down that path. Right? Because they struck you on the face, it worked, you walk away, there's no problem. They're not confronted with their, with their sin. They're not challenged in any way, so they just continue on doing the same thing they've always been doing. But at the same time, if when you're slapped in the face, you respond by slapping the other one in the face, all you've done is confirmed for the one who started the fight that it was worth slapping you. He said, see, I was right to preemptively strike. Because look what they did. They are the enemy. And it perpetuates a cycle of violence. So you hit me, I hit you, you hit me, and it just keeps going. But here's what happens if you respond the way Jesus says, nonviolent resistance. You don't just walk away and you don't engage in payback. Instead, you turn the other cheek. What you're doing there is you're challenging the oppressor. You're challenging the violent one. You're saying, first of all, this didn't work. I'm not intimidated by your violence. You hitting him in the face isn't going to make me go away. But at the same time, you're saying, I'm not going to stoop down to your level. I'm not going to become like you. I'm not going to participate in this cycle of, of violence and evil. You turn the other cheek. By turning the other cheek, you're challenging them. You're doing something. And it's very hard to do. There's a great example of this I ran across this week. Of course, you know South Africa for years uh, had horrible racial um, 
sin, racial tension, uh, racism, apartheid. And uh, there's a story of a black woman walking on a South African street with her children. And as she's walking down the street, a white man's coming the other way. And he just stops as she's walking by and spits on her face. Right? So think about our options in that situation. Uh, the payback response is pretty obvious. You spit on me, I spit on you. Spit for a spit. Okay? The passive response is also pretty obvious. You just keep your head down keep on walking. That's not what the lady did. She looked at the guy in the face and she said, thank you. You forgot the children. Now what, what, that, that's turning the other cheek. Right? This is bold. This is challenging. Because what, what does the guy have to face then? He has to face the fact that he's the sort of person who would spit on children. He's confronted with the evilness of his sin. And this guy walked away because he couldn't, he couldn't handle it. Right? That's what turning the other cheek is. We want to fight back. We want to spit on the guy. We want to rub his head in the dirt. We want to kick him. We want to do all these sort of things to let him know how evil he is. But that just perpetuates the cycle of violence that's overcoming evil with evil. It doesn't work. Turning the other cheek looks like a creative response. It doesn't walk away, doesn't shy away from the conflict, but doesn't engage in the same terms as the one who's doing it. Turning the other cheek, it looks like loving the other person enough to point out the sin without paying them back. It avoids payback and passivity, and it looks like love. Now, as we think about this principle, um, it's fairly easy to think of, of applications for this if, for example, we were living in Syria and we have people who are actively trying to kill us. We think, okay, those are the people who are you know, abusing us. And, 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 and well, wow, it'd be hard, hard application, but at least we'd see that's what it is. Or, or if we lived in Ferguson, Missouri, right? A lot of stuff going on there, a lot of conflict, a lot of, a lot of cheek slapping and needing to turn, and, and there'd be hard application, but it'd be kind of obvious to know what we're supposed to do in that situation. Okay, but we don't live in Syria. Uh, we don't live in Ferguson. So what's it mean for us? Um, well, you know, there, there is, you don't, you don't have to go to Missouri to encounter violent people or oppressive people or just mean people or injustice. Uh, there's plenty of bullying that goes on here. There's plenty of mean bosses or troublesome coworkers, neighbors. You know, even within our most intimate relationships, our family and our spouses, we can be horrible to one another. And we are tempted to keep score and to keep track of all the ways that we've been hurt by our boss or by our spouse or by our neighbor or, or whoever, and we keep track of that list, we begin plotting or even just rooting for them to get hurt right back. But that's not love. Payback is not love. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't hit back. Love doesn't seek revenge. But love's not passive. Love's not a doormat. Love finds creative ways in whatever situation you find yourself in to respond to evil without participating in the evil. To overcome evil with good. Um, so for some of you who are here today, I, I'm sure that this is more than just a theoretical discussion. As I'm talking about people who have wronged you, you have a name or a few names on that list and you want to make them pay. 
So you need to know that Jesus is saying you cannot seek revenge. You cannot pay them back, evil for evil. You need to love them enough to let go of your desire for payback. But at the same time, Jesus is not telling you to do nothing. He's not telling you to be a doormat to let them walk all over you. He's saying you got to love them enough to overcome evil with good. Okay, so how do we do that? Well, that, that really depends on the situation. Right? So, so if you've got questions about that, I'd love to talk with you about that, way, that this week face-to-face. Or if you want to write down questions in your specific situation, put in the box, we can talk about that. It may be just as simple as making them food. You know, I want to take Romans 12 uh, seriously. When Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. You know, it may be just making them cookies. And they gotta, then they've got to think, like, did you poison these? What, did you put laxatives in here? What's going on? Right? And it keeps burning coals on their head. But you're just loving them, right? It may be as simple as that. It may be more complicated. What I believe as we pray is we keep our eyes open for ways to love our enemies instead of fight back. We will find ways to do it. Love means we don't demand payback. Uh, but that's more. Uh, that, that there's more that Jesus has to say here, so let's keep on going. Uh, Jesus also says that love means we do more than the bare minimum. Uh, more than the bare minimum. Part of the scorekeeping mentality is we only do what's strictly required. We live in the realm of my rights, my rights. I know my rights. I know what I have to do. I know what I'm obligated to do for you. I will do that much and no more. That's what scorekeeping looks like. But Jesus challenges that in verses 41 and 40, 40 and 41. He says, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him. Two miles. Verse 40 seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Like, why would someone sue you for your tunic? It's never happened to me. I don't know. I don't even have a tunic. Well, the tunic was the, the long undergarment. Two main pieces of clothing, right? You've got the tunic, which is the undergarment, this long shirt going all the way down to your, your legs, and then the cloak is the one that goes around the outside, like the bathroom, right? So the tunic uh, was a, a valuable piece of clothing. I mean, this is a commodity. They're, they're, they're relatively scarce and therefore expensive. Uh, and, and you could be used, you could use tunics to settle debts. You could buy things with them as, a, as for bartering. Uh, so a tunic was, was valuable, not like our modern conception of disposable clothing. We would never sue someone for their clothes. I, mean, I think it's ridiculous. Uh, but, but people would sue for clothes. They would use it as payment. Uh, the catch, though, was that you couldn't sue for the outer cloak. People could sue you for your tunic, the undergarment, but not the outer cloak. There are several biblical commands that forbid you from taking someone's outer cloak. It was just too much. You couldn't take that from somebody. So what happens here in in the scorekeeping mentality, someone sues you. Maybe you owe them a debt or something. You won't pay. They sue you for your cloak. Uh, you, You fight it, of course, but then you lose. And so the court says, you have to pay off this debt with your tunic. Now, you know your rights, so you know that you do not have to give your cloak. In fact, they cannot demand that of you. So under a scorekeeping mentality, what you would do is you would say, well, the court said I have to pay my tunic. I'll give you that and no more. And of course that's what you do. I mean, who would do anything besides that? If you're in a court case and, and you lose and the judge says you have to pay X dollars to so-and-so, you don't respond and say, you know what, I think I really should pay twice that much. I think you got it wrong. I'm going to give twice as much. You don't do that. You pay exactly what you have to do and no more. And yet Jesus says... If they would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak too. They have no right to it, no claim on it. Give it to them. 
Verse 41 makes the same point. The Romans, uh, who were the, sold, you know, the occupying force at this time, Jesus is, is teaching this, the Roman soldiers had the right to force you to carry their gear. You could be walking the other direction. You could be late for an appointment. You could be doing whatever you're doing. And the Roman soldiers say, hey, you, carry this for me. We're going this way. And you have to do it. It was part of their, their rights. It's part of the system. But Jesus says, you know, when they, when they take you that appointed distance and they stop and say, okay, you're free to go, uh, instead of you saying, I'm out of here, right? I know my rights. You can't make me go any farther. You say, you know what? I, I just really would love to serve you some more. How much farther do you go? Another mile? Let's go another mile. Pick up the pack and keep on walking. Okay, who does that? What is Jesus driving at with these illustrations? He's teaching us the radical nature of love. He's teaching us what love looks like. Love does not do the bare minimum. Love does not operate in this realm of legal obligation where you only do what someone else makes you do, what you're legally obligated to do. Love has no limits. Love does not say, I will go this far but no farther. Love goes the extra mile. If we want to be really challenging, I mean, we'd notice uh, that these instructions Jesus gives are actually attitudes towards our enemies. He's talking about doing this for a person who's suing you or a Roman occupying soldier who's forcing you to carry their load. Okay, that's really hard. I think it's hard enough just doing this with friends and family. just, Just think about sometimes the way that we negotiate the division of labor in our households. Who's going to do the laundry? Who's going to make the dinner? Who's going to mow the lawn? Who's going to do the dishes? And so often what happens is, you know, the different family members get their jobs. And in, you know, in the worst case, you know, don't do the job. But even in the best case, uh, people will do their jobs, but only their jobs. Adamantly refuse to do someone else's job. It's not my responsibility to clean up the basement. I, that wasn't my job. That was last week. That was me. I cleaned up my room, or I did the dishes, or I unloaded the dishwasher. I, and, and we say, I, I know my rights. I'll go this far, but no farther. And I can blame my kids, but I have to confess, this is me. Sometimes I've been known to do the dishes while leaving the kitchen counter a mess because I agree to do the dishes. I did not agree to clean the counters. Or I can ignore piles of laundry that needs to be folded while I watch TV because laundry is not my responsibility. I know my rights. And don't we do that in our workplaces? Well, that's not my job. In our neighborhoods, the trash isn't on my lawn. In our church families, only doing the bare minimum of what's legally required of us, keeping score, making sure everybody else is pulling their weight. I'm not going to do more than anybody else. I'm going to take care of my stuff, but you've got to pull your weight. Yeah, that's how scorekeeping works, just doing the bare minimum of what we have to do. That's how the world works. But that's not how Jesus works. That's not how love works. Love doesn't ask, what is the bare minimum that I can get away with? Love says, what can I do to serve you and bless you, even if you're my enemy? Love goes the extra mile. It's challenging. But Jesus isn't done. He continues in verse 42 by teaching that love means we give with no strings attached. 
Verse 42, he says, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Give to the one who begs from you, do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. How does money work in a scorekeeping world? What is, how do you use money when you function under scorekeeping mentality? Uh, well, actually, we have an example. Banks, right? Very helpful. Banks handle money with a scorekeeping mentality. That's how they work. They've got lots of money, and sometimes, under a few situations, they let other people have some, but always with strings attached. Right? You don't walk up to a bank and say, hey, could I have 100 bucks?" I mean, you could try that. They wouldn't give you anything. That's not how they work. You have to actually have earned it. So one way that you can get that money is if you have made deposits in the bank over time. You've taken your money, you've put it in the bank, you've made your deposits, and if you put enough in, then when time comes, you ask for money out, they'll give it to you. Another way you can get money from bank is if you prove to them that you're worth it and you will make it worth their while. You can get a loan from a bank. You can go in and you say, I haven't put money into your bank, but I promise that I will pay it back with interest. And if you prove that you're worthy, then they'll give you some money and you pay it back over time. That's how money works in a scorekeeping world. And too often we imitate banks in the way that we deal with money, the way that we give or don't give to others. You think, I will give to you if you've made sufficient deposits with me. That is, if you've done something for me, then I will give to you. Uh, if you've done me a favor, or if you will owe me a favor, if I do this, then I will give to you. Or if they've made deposits through you know, long-term relationships or being a family member, if they've got some sort of deposit in the bank with us, we'll say, yes, then I will give to you. If somebody just walks up to us, and say, hey, can I have something? I say, well, no. You haven't done anything for me. The score, the score sheet is not in your favor. Or we'll give if someone makes, uh, makes it worth our while, if we know that they'll pay us back. You know, we'll make a loan to somebody who's trustworthy. Or if we know that if we give this money, then it'll somehow put them in our debt and we'll have leverage and be able to get something from them in the future. We'll give then. You know, generally, we have a really strong scorekeeping mentality with money, I think in part because money is how we keep score. So generally, we don't just give money away. But Jesus challenges that here too. And he says we need to give with no strings attached. The only criteria here in this verse is that they ask for it. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse to the one who would borrow from you. Does that mean that we check our brains at the door and simply give to anybody who asks every time? No, there's other scriptures that talk about that. If you want to talk about that more, you can write a question down and we'll talk about it. But it does mean that we have to change our disposition. A person who loves isn't looking for excuses not to give to other people. A person who loves has a disposition to give. If someone comes up to you and and begs from you and, and, and asks to borrow from you, a person who loves has the disposition that's inclined to say yes. The bank is inclined to say no. The person who loves is inclined to say yes. The person who loves is not hard-hearted against the needs of others. The person who loves gives to those who ask whether they deserve it or not, whether they can pay you back or not, whether they're worth it or not. This is a really challenging passage. Not so hard to understand, but hard to live. 
Jesus makes some really demanding claims on our lives. He says we need to turn the other cheek, give up our claims of payback. We need to stop thinking about our rights, only doing the bare minimum of what's required, but blessing extravagantly. He says we need to give, give, even to those who don't deserve it. You know, and these are the sort of commands that throughout history people have been tempted to write off as just too hard. Just nice ideals, but could never, ever live it. And I would be tempted to do that too if Jesus hadn't actually done it. Okay, there's nothing here he's telling us to do that he didn't do himself. In fact, I'd argue that we are never more like Jesus than when we are doing these things. You think about the end of the life of Jesus. When he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Peter do? Peter took out his sword. So these guys are coming at us, we're going to come after them. You're going to arrest my Savior, I'm going to cut off your ear. Jesus said, put away the sword, Peter. He healed the guy's ear. Jesus said, if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels to come down here. You want to talk about disproportionate response, right? You try to arrest me in the garden, I'll blow you out of the water with my celestial power. Okay, he says, but I'm not, I'm not here for that. He didn't seek payback. You know, Jesus was slapped. He was spit upon by the religious leaders. He was whipped and beaten by the soldiers. And when that happened, he literally turned the other cheek. When they compelled him to carry his cross, he carried it until he collapsed. When they took all his clothes and hung him naked on the cross, he didn't insist on his rights. He should have been worshipped. He wasn't supposed to be hanging on a cross naked, being despised by everybody. He's the son of God. He should have been worshipped. We should have been bowing down to praise him in all glory and honor, but he didn't insist on that. He loved us enough to move beyond what he deserved to bless us extravagantly. And when we were enemies of God, not even having the good sense to be beggars, not even having the good sense to ask him for mercy, when we were still enemies of God, He showed us such generosity that he freely gave us the riches of forgiveness and eternal life with no strings attached. We did not put him in our debt. We weren't worth it. But he gave freely. See, if you want to know what love looks like, look at Jesus hanging on the cross. You see him turn the other cheek. You see him going the extra mile. You see him giving generously to beggars like you and me. That's love. I pray that God will give us the grace to go and do likewise.